Good morning, Heritage. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. This morning's scripture reading is Mark chapter 3, the third chapter of Mark in its entirety. If you're using a Pew Bible, it's on page 838. Page 838. Just a quick word to really young children. Those of you who don't know how to read yet, I would encourage you to listen very closely. This is what Pastor-elect Jonathan will be preaching on this morning. It's important that you listen. Also, those of you who have failing eyesight, the same goes to you. And I encourage the rest of you to um, follow along in your Bibles. Mark chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... 
he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But one can, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless his word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that reading of your word. It's life to us. It's nourishing. It is helpful. But God, we gather this morning um, not to hear a nice lecture about the Bible. That's not why we're here. We're here because we are your people. You have called us out of darkness and you have transferred us into the kingdom of your son and we are here to declare the gospel and to proclaim that gospel. And so we ask God together as a family that your spirit would now move in our body and in this family in such a way that we are absolutely gripped by your word and changed by it. And that you would, that you would preach, that your spirit would preach, and that you would just use me, a broken, cracked clay pot, to Lord, to do great things in the hearts of everyone who's here, Christian and non-Christian alike. Pray that you would call forth some non-Christians to put their trust in the King and in the Savior this morning. Please do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And that's what we're going to do is we are going to encounter the King this morning, King Jesus. And I was thinking as uh, Dad was praying about Martha, uh, Joy's mother, um, that it is precisely the fact that Mark 3, the fact that we have Mark 3 gives us so much hope for a situation like Martha. Because he is King Jesus. He has all authority uh, to heal and, and to, to work all kinds of miracles and wonders. And he is still doing that. And we're going to confront this king uh, this morning. Um, and, I, and as I was preparing this message this week, uh, it, the whole chapter of Mark 3, that's a, that's a daunting task, to look at the whole chapter and try to figure out what is going on with uh, 35 verses of Scripture. It's hard enough to preach a paragraph of two or three verses, but to try to preach 35 verses in one sermon um, is, is so challenging. And as I was thinking about a theme or what was connecting this text, uh, as I began to study it, something greater was emerging in the text 
and it was it was amazing for me to see uh, what was behind the text. So often when we read the text, we we read in the text. That is, we see what the text says. But as you study theology and as you press into the Word of God, you start seeing connections all over the Scriptures so that as Mark is writing, he's actually thinking of the Old Testament Scriptures and more than just Mark 3 is coming out, but that Mark himself is, is thinking in light of the Old Testament Scriptures. So... I ask that you would pray for me as I seek to do that, is to give you some behind the text this morning as well as in the text. And I want to paint a, a big picture of Jesus as the king, and my prayer is that you will encounter Jesus Christ in a very powerful way this morning. The title of my message is Insiders and Outsiders, and that title begs the question, Insiders and Outsiders of what? The phrase that you'll see on the bulletin is, who's in and who's out? And that leads us to ask the question, in and out of what? Well, I'll complete that thought for you in a while. But for now, the subject of royalty is always been, has always been fascinating to us as Americans, I think. Uh, the Queen of England, when she came here a couple of years ago, and she was at the uh, Kentucky Derby. Actually, people came from out of the woodworks, everywhere. Uh, Hollywood movie stars, uh, they normally come to uh, things like that, like the Kentucky Derby. But in this case, everybody came out because the Queen of England is is uh, this great grand figure. Everybody wanted to be around her and to see her and hope to meet her. But how is it that when we talk about royalty in the Christian life and the kingship of Jesus, and we even sing songs about Jesus being king, so you think of Christmas, all these songs about King Jesus – um, Hark the herald angels sing, uh, glory to the newborn king. How is it that we can sing songs like that and be so unaffected by the kingship of Jesus? I mean, it's, it's just become commonplace for us to talk about Jesus as king. But what bearing does that actually have on your life right now as you sit there in the pew at Heritage Baptist Church, the fact that Jesus is king well, I think it's interesting that as, as, ro- as interesting as royalty and kingship is uh, and, uh, to us, the truth is most of us have never experienced pol- political life under a royalty or under a kingship. We don't know what that's like. So for many of us, the idea of Jesus and his kingship is just a religious symbol. You know, it's just an image that we talk about in church. So for some... If Jesus is a king at all, he's just a religious king at best. It's just an image that we use. In other words, he's essentially a fictional king, a storybook king, one with no real authority, one with no real ability to affect our lives, at least, one that really has nothing to do with us. Oh, it's a great story for the kids, isn't it? Jesus being a king... But really, what does it have to do with us? Well, our text this morning, Mark chapter 3, really challenges this idea that Jesus is just kind of a religious symbol. See, what we are confronted with in Mark chapter 3, the notion that Jesus is king is not just a nice story that we are to think about or a nice religious symbol, but the fact that he really is king and Lord of all. And that, my friends has immediate implications for your lives. 
one way or another, all of you will have to come in, will have to have a confrontation with this king, this sovereign ruler over all his kingdom. So let's start with Mark chapter 1. Back up to Mark chapter 1 and look at verse 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15. This is what Mark 1 says. 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So from the beginning of Mark's gospel, we have Jesus saying that the kingdom of God has drawn near. There's a drawing near of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is proclaiming that the dawn of a glorious new era has, a, has come. In salvation history, this new era would be characterized by the Lord reigning over the whole earth and Jesus standing as the last and final king of his people. So in Jesus, the new covenant would be fulfilled. So we think of Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant. And in Jesus, this covenant is fulfilled and God's people would keep his law and the new creation that was promised would actually become a reality. The Lord would pour out his spirit on all flesh and the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed to the ends of the earth would become a reality in Jesus Christ. So when we read the Gospels, it's clear that the kingdom of God is central to Jesus' teaching. In fact, the phrase the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven occurs all over the Gospels. It's found 36 times in the book of Matthew. In Mark, it occurs 14 times. In Luke, 32 times. And in the Gospel of John, 4 times. The importance of that phrase is clear from summary statements made about Jesus' life. So, for example, Matthew 4.23. Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming what? The good news of the kingdom and curing every disease. The good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God. It was central to the life and teaching of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach during his earthly ministry... What do we see them doing? We see that the disciples went out and they proclaimed the kingdom of God. Matthew 10, 7, Luke 9, 2. Now, there's a sense, of course, in which God has always reigned over the earth. God has always ruled as king over all. But when Jesus spoke of the coming of the kingdom, he was not referring to God's sovereign reign over all of history. Because God has always reigned over all of history. The coming of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed designated something new. A time when God's enemies would be demonstrably defeated and righteousness would be visibly, the righteous would be visibly blessed. So when Jesus announces here in, in Mark 3, in Mark 1, 15 and 16, when he announces the presence of the kingdom, he is declaring that God was about to bring salvation that he had always promised in the Old Testament. So you think of the Old Testament promises of, of a new covenant and a new creation and a new exodus. And this was beginning to be fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. Okay, now you say, what does all that have to do with Mark chapter 3? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked because I think it has everything to do with Mark chapter 3. You know the word kingdom doesn't even occur in Mark 3. And here I am, I'm starting a sermon with an introduction on the kingdom of God, and the word kingdom doesn't even appear in the text. Because in order to understand Mark 3, you have to step behind the text 
and see a larger picture of what Jesus is doing. Mark 3, then, is primarily concerned with this idea. Mark 3 is concerned with a whole world of false ideas of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. The main thing Mark is doing in chapter 3 is showing how Jesus is destroying all of our deep-rooted ideas that we can earn the kingdom of God by just being good people. He's destroying every notion of self-sufficiency and every arrogant refusal to seek God's help to do it on your own. In Mark 3, what we'll see is that the spiritually dead, the chronically self-justifying Pharisees and scribes, and ironically, even Jesus' own family who's oblivious to what's happening with Jesus, we'll see, that, we'll see Jesus tearing down, and, and really through Mark's writing, all of these false notions of how to get into the kingdom. So Mark is on a mission in chapter 3. He is stripping away every self-righteous, works-based method of getting into the kingdom. And he tears down all these false methods to getting in the kingdom. And he's offering only one true way to be in the kingdom of God. And that comes at the end of the text. So that's the point of Mark 3. So let me be clear. If you're one for outlines, if that's helpful to you, let, let me tell you where I'm going this morning and, uh, and see if that's more clear to you. Uh, this is where I'm going. From verses 1 through 12 in Mark chapter 3, what we have is controversy surrounding the kingdom. Controversy surrounding the kingdom. Then in verses 13 through 19, what we have is the establishing of the kingdom. The establishing of the kingdom, verses 13 through 19. And then in verses 19 through 30, we have the enemies of the kingdom... The enemies of the kingdom, 19 through 30. And then verses 31 through 35, the members of the kingdom. Okay? That's where I'm going. Controversy, establishment, enemies, and members. Now, you can anticipate that with such a massive shift in redemptive history, from the Old Testament to the New, Jesus coming on the scene, announcing the kingdom, and Jesus beginning to set up the kingdom. You can imagine great controversy would rise in such a situation. The kingdom that Jesus is establishing is the point at which this conflict is most acute. So he has all these run-ins with the scribes and Pharisees. So look there in verse 1 of, of Mark chapter 3. Last week, uh, my dad ended with Jesus' claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And this sets the stage for yet, a, yet another, more, actually more heated uh, conflict with the Pharisees. We've upped the ante now. Okay? The, Jesus had a run-in with them once, but now this is a more heated conflict. Verse 1, it says, again, uh, Jesus entered the synagogue. Again, he entered the synagogue. So what's happening here is that Jesus is probably entering the synagogue on another Sabbath, as Luke says. So on a secondary Sabbath, it could be even the next week, Jesus enters the Sabbath, and what happens is the Pharisees are hounding Jesus. It's like they are following him around everywhere he goes. But I want you to notice that the atmosphere has changed. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. In chapter 2, verse 24, what does it say? It says, And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So it, Jesus is walking through the grain fields, and he's plucking heads of grain, and the Pharisees notice the fact that Jesus is plucking heads of grain. That is, they just make an observation. Now the atmosphere has changed. In chapter 3, they're not just noticing something. 
They're not just making an observation. They are going out of their way to watch Jesus, to see if he will do something on the Sabbath. That's the language. Verse 2, they are watching Jesus. Now you can see the intent of their hearts. What, what's the purpose? So that they could accuse him. Into verse 2. So the atmosphere has changed. The Pharisees are now watching Jesus. They're highly critical of Jesus. In verse 4, what does Jesus do? He is, Jesus is so brilliant. I love how he just traps these guys. Jesus says, um, he traps them with a question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? See, on the one hand, the Pharisees would be bound to admit that it's always lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Who's going to say it's not lawful to do good on the Sabbath? But on the other hand, on the other hand, they're bound to admit that it's always wrong to do evil on the Sabbath. So Jesus sort of traps them with his question. And then he raises the ante and Jesus says, he doesn't just leave it at that, but he says, is it lawful to save a life or to kill it? Now, I, I don't know if you see the irony here or not, but look at verse 6. While the Pharisees are busy, while Jesus is busy being merciful to a man's life, the Pharisees are plotting for ways to kill Jesus. The Pharisees themselves knew that doing something like that on the Sabbath was evil, and yet they're turning around on the Sabbath and devising a plan to kill Jesus. Breaking their own law. Hypocrites. Scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. Jesus traps them. He utterly traps them, but their own character traps them. Do you see that? It, see, this is, this is what happens in the heart of, a, of, a, of an unbeliever. They can't live within themselves without self-contradiction. The Pharisees cannot. These legalistic Pharisees cannot live without contradicting themselves. But really, you know what? None of that's really ultimately finally the point of Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6. You see, although God intended the Sabbath to be a day of rest for our bodies and a day we set aside to worship God and delight in the good things he has given us, the Pharisees had so buried what Scripture said about the Sabbath under a pile of case law and scribal additions that the true meaning of the Sabbath was obscured completely. Let me speak into your life for a moment. Friends, beware of any tendency to destroy the gracious intent of the Sabbath by creating an extra-biblical list of regulations. I believe that one of the reasons why so many people are afraid of the Sabbath or a Sabbatarian theology is precisely because it's been abused. It's because there's been so much abuse of it and, and so what, what, what people see is they see all this legalism and all this pharisaical law around it that they are turned off from it. So a good thing has become a bad thing because people have, have ruined a good thing by turning it into something that it's not. Do, do you see that? So, so in other words, what's happening is, is this is very, very subtle, but if we're not careful... What happened is this, this is a great danger to our soul is that we begin, take, we take a good thing and we add something to a good thing and the thing that we add is the thing that is our emphasis 
and the things that we have added to it become the dominating motif for how we live. So it's not Scripture anymore. It's what we've added to Scripture, and that becomes a dominating motif. And we need to redeem and honor the beauty of the Sabbath. We need to redeem it by stripping it from Pharisaic ideas. Ideas like this. On a Sabbath, if a bird flies under your robe... Does that happen to anybody? (laughs) On the Sabbath, if a bird flies under your robe and gets caught underneath, you will need to wait patiently to get the bird out of your robe until sundown, because to work at getting it out before sundown would be to work and be a violation and profanation of the Sabbath. That comes from the Mishnah. In the days of Jesus, the rabbis and scribes wrote a document called the Mishnah. And this book contained principle after principle of what it meant to keep the law of God. It contained 20 or more books. And you know what it was? It was it, the idea was to take every possible life circumstance and apply the Sabbath law to that. That's deadly. Or how about this one? Our people need to walk to the synagogue, but not too much. They actually counted steps 11,100. But if you go 11,101, you've profaned the Sabbath. Now, this may sound funny, but actually it should frighten us. It should frighten us because every one of us has within us a little Pharisee who wants to write a Mishnah. So when we hear that there's a Lord's Day, that there's a fourth commandment, and that we should be treating that day different from the rest, and we should, our first impulse is to write a Mishnah and create a whole list of things that we are to avoid And so we create a nice, tidy box of religion. And quite subtly, what happens is you begin to treat your list like it's the Word of God. And you assume that if you follow it through, you will earn favor with God, and so we will become Pharisees without even knowing it. Let me be clear. I don't think list creating is what God has ever intended for us on the Sabbath. Why do we always think of the Sabbath in terms of negative terms? Jesus says, for example, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He speaks of the Sabbath in very positive terms. Therefore, the question is not so much a question of what I am avoiding on the Sabbath as maybe we should be emphasizing what should we be doing on the Sabbath. And I think a good place to start would be Jesus-like things. Works of mercy would be a good place to start. Let me ask you some x-ray questions just to kind of get at your heart and motive when it comes to the Sabbath. Ask yourself this question. When you're thinking about what I should or should not do on the Lord's Day, let me ask you a question to discern your heart. Ask yourself this question. Is, Is this action, whatever you're about to do, loving God? Is this action loving my neighbor? Is this activity something that declares my freedom and bondage from sin? Or does it demonstrate that I am in bondage to a particular event or activity? Or, ask this question. See, see, this is a great idol locator. Sundays are a great idol locator. It's good for identifying idols of the heart, things that you can't give up. Sundays is a great way to determine this. Is this activity going to distract me from God? Or is it going to help me love God and my neighbor? Is this action going to help me love others physically or spiritually? 
Or is it going to be harmful to my worship and rest or the worship and rest of others? See, these are appropriate x-ray questions that get at the heart of the issue without creating a Mishnah. You see the difference? This is heart motivation. Now, I wanted to insert that parenthetically on the Sabbath because it's important that we emphasize these things. Last week, my dad was emphasizing the importance of the sanctity of the day. That's why we hold to the Sabbath. That's why we want to sanctify the day. And what I'm, what I'm doing this week is coming on the other side and saying, okay, in your sanctification of the day, avoid pharisaical trappings. So we must be scriptural in how we behave and conduct ourselves on the Lord's day. Now, none of that is the point of Mark 3, 1 through 6, okay? Now, the, the reason why is this. I want you to look at the last verse. Mark uses uh, some interesting language here. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. This phrase, they held counsel with the Herodians, is actually picking up the language of Psalm chapter 2. Mark chapter 3 is a partial fulfillment of Psalm chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 2. Let's go back to Psalm chapter 2. Please turn in your Bibles there. Psalm 2. Listen to the language of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In Psalm chapter 1, you see the same. You know, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are meant to be read together. I don't know if you're aware of that. At the end of Psalm 1, it talks about this counsel, the beginning of it. It says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel, same word, the counsel of the wicked. This is the exact same word uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that is used here in Mark chapter 3. So what, what, what's happening here is Mark is actually painting the Pharisees with the same language that he's painting Psalm 2, the nations raging in order to destroy the anointed. He is painting them with the same language of the enemies of God in Psalm 2. The, those who are opposing the Davidic king. Mark is beginning to push on the idea that the Jewish leadership is the enemies of God in Psalm chapter 2. This means that they are not, ethnic Israel is not God's covenant people. And that he is going to establish a new community, which is the whole point of verses 13 through 19 in this chapter. But before we get there, I just want you to notice something, how Jesus establishes authority in verses 7 through 12. All right, so if Jesus is going to do something this transformative and this radical, he's going to have to establish somehow his authority. And, and, and what he does is in verses 7 through 12, as you see this, now Jesus' popularity is rising. And at this point, people are coming from hundreds of miles away to see Jesus. L literally, a hundred miles they come to see Jesus. Clearly, they don't know what's going on. You see, you see, most of these crowds, they're actually gathering around Jesus for a healing. That's what they want. They want to use Jesus in order to get a healing for themselves. Most of them are just simply out for that. But notice that the deity of Jesus is being established in verse 11. 
Look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So the kingdom of God is at hand, and this marks the beginning of the end. You know what it marks? It marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. Now he's receiving opposition. The evil spirits are coming out, crying out against Jesus, and, and also the Pharisees are now opposing Jesus. So Mark chapter 3 marks the beginning of the whole book, where from this point forward, all the way through the rest of the book, Jesus will be opposed. He will be consistently opposed, and he will be opposed all the way to the end of his life when he is finally crucified. This marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' life. But thankfully, Jesus the King rises again from the dead. So it doesn't mark the end of Jesus or his rulership. He is still king right now. He is the victor, and he achieves final victory. But you know what else it marks? It marks the end, the beginning of the end for the demonic and satanic realm. This is so amazing. Is that the demons themselves are screaming out, You are the Son of God! Do you know what happens in Mark chapter 2? There's a heightened Christology here. The heightening of a Christology here. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. Chapter 1, verse 24. Notice what the, the demons say. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You are a Holy One of God. Okay? So, presumably, actually, you could say, you could actually make the case that somebody who is really godly or may, maybe a... a, a I don't know, angelic or Abraham-like or, you know, just Noah was righteous or these guys. Maybe you could say, this person is the Holy One of God. So the demons say, you are the Holy One of God. But now, in chapter 3, they're actually heightening this and they're saying, you are not just the Holy One of God, you are the Son of God. So... What's happening, as Jesus is beginning to establish his reign and his kingdom, the, the, the demonic realm is beginning to be shaken and broken. And as it begins to break, and as Jesus begins to take over and reign, the demons become more agitated, the evil spirits become more concerned, more worried, more frustrated, more angry, and now they're heightening, even their language is changing, and they're calling Jesus by a name that's more representative of who he is. He's not just the Holy One of God. He is the Son of God who has come to set up his kingdom. The longer Jesus ministers, the more he establishes his kingdom and the more aware and shaken the demonic realm becomes. Now, the irony of this section is the fact that the evil spirits know more about Jesus than even the people. See, here's the people, they're all out there to receive a healing from Jesus, but the demonic realm actually knows who he is. Which is why Jesus orders them strictly not to make him known. What? You ever wondered that? Why does Jesus say, don't, don't tell who I am? I thought that was strange when I read that. Jesus, here's why. Jesus refuses to let them use titles like Son of God and Messiah because of the political unrest of the time. These titles at this time would put all the wrong ideas in all the wrong heads of all the wrong people. They don't understand what Messiah means. They don't understand what this Son of God language is. They're thinking in political terms. They're going to totally misconstrue the kingdom of Jesus. 
And so Jesus wants to do more teaching on what does it mean that he is the Son of God? What does it mean that he is Messiah, the Anointed One? So he, he tells them not to speak in this language. Plus, I don't think Jesus wants demons being his spokesman. You know, it's just a common, basic uh, application. No, he commissions his own to be his spokesman. Certainly not the demonic realm, who are, who are liars and deceivers. So they're, they're, they're not, they are forbidden to speak. But the point here is this. By what authority does Jesus go around establishing his kingdom? By what authority is he calling out a remnant and creating a new people of God? His authority to do this comes from the fact that he is the Son of God. And that's the point. It's the point of this. Now, if you're a non-Christian, um, I, I, just want to throw, I just want to put this in for you. Demons are, demons are not atheists. James, James, chapter, James chapter 1 verse 19, even the demons believe and yet tremble. And, and I also want to say this to you, if you're a non-Christian lovingly, let me see. You are under this regime. It's not Hitler. It's not Stalin. It's not Genghis Khan. You are under the regime, not of Osama bin Laden, but of the devil who created, who, who, who has caused all these guys like Hitler and Stalin and Genghis Khan and Osama bin Laden to be as evil as they are. You're actually under the master of that regime. To my Christian friends, we serve the King. The Son of God is our Savior. Take hope. What do you worry in? Why are you worrying? Take hope. The King is our Savior. Also, consider the kindness and severity of God. The kindness and severity of God here. You think of of how Jesus is setting up His kingdom. There seems to be this, this hardening of ethnic Israel taking place. And Jesus is the Son of God. He's establishing His kingdom. He's calling a new people to Himself. He's having this... And, and, and in Romans 11, this is powerful passage, um, 19 through 22 says, what the, the branches were broken off, Jewish branches were broken off so that Gentiles would be grafted in. And Paul says, don't boast, because if the Jewish branches were broken off, you also could be cut off. And you know what he says? Fear. Phobu in Greek, where we get the word phobia. Phobu, fear, for you too could be cut off. And then he says this, he says this, Consider then the kindness and the severity of God. Do you think you'll receive special mercy because you were born in a Christian family? Because you've been in church your whole life? Because you're reformed? In your theology? No. There is nothing about you that is worthy of God's mercy. You have to come to grips with that. My non-Christian friend, you have to come to grips with that. You are not worthy. We are not worthy. No one is worthy on our own accord to, to stand before God. Actually, if God judged any of us on our own merit, none of us could stand. And that's why our only hope is to be judged on the basis of someone else's merit. Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what we believe at Heritage Baptist Church. And that's why Christ, that's exactly what he has come to do. He has come to take God's wrath for us, to die so that we could live. And if you're a non-Christian, let me urge you to lay down any ideas that you have of being good enough to get into the kingdom of God. You're not good enough. 
You'll never be good enough. It's not possible for you to be good enough. Your only hope of avoiding hell someday is by turning away from yourself and turning to Jesus Christ and putting your exclusive trust in the Son of God and His righteousness. But the beautiful thing, friends, is this, is that God is in the business of saving sinners. That's His business. From the beginning of redemptive history in Genesis all the way to Revelation, He's in the business of saving sinners. He's creating a new people for Himself. He's establishing a kingdom that will be from everlasting to everlasting, and that is exactly what's happening, verses 13 through 19. Look at verses 13 through 19. In these verses, Jesus is creating a new people for Himself. In fact, He is reconstituting the people of Israel. He's reconstituting the people of Israel. Observe the Old Testament imagery. It is absolutely soaked in the Old Testament. See, see, this is why you can't just read Mark 3 by itself. You have to read Mark 3 in light of redemptive history. Mark 3 should be read in light of Psalm 2. Mark 3 should be read in light of Genesis. So it's so important to go behind the text to understand what the text itself is saying. So, note, note the Old Testament imagery. imagery verse 13. Verse 13, you can probably see where I'm going here. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. See, in the Bible, mountains are places of revelation. So Mount Sinai, revelation is given. Jesus goes up to the mount, and he delivers his famous sermon on the mount. Revelation is given. So it's no mistake here that Jesus is going up to a mountain. It's no mistake here. Luke says, actually, that before Jesus goes up to the mountain, he prayed all night before he appoints the twelve. So what's going on here? Jesus is functioning as the new Moses. The new Moses who is calling the new people of God to himself. He is reconstituting the people of Israel. Jesus is the new Moses. He is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect covenant mediator between God and man. What Moses could not do, Jesus can. Moses was serving as a mediator between God and, 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 and Israel of sorts. But he's not the mediator. He's certainly not the perfect mediator. Only Jesus is that perfect mediator who leads his people up to the mountain. He appoints, or in the Greek, as the Greek makes clear in verse 12, he makes 12. He creates 12 for himself, whom he names apostles. He does this for the sake of his messianic mission. Now look at verses 14. Look at verse 14. Now he calls the twelve, he appoints the twelve, he creates the twelve. And notice that Jesus chooses twelve men. See, while, men, while the men themselves are ordinary, their number was not. Twelve was a way of announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. Like the reconstitution of the twelve tribes of Israel. Do you see? This is all symbolic of the fact that Jesus is establishing a new form of the people of God. And so Jesus will form his church, just as Ephesians 2, uh, 2.20 says, and the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So he is forming the foundation of his people. And he chose these 12 men for a specific purpose, the purpose of extending his mission through them. And isn't it interesting who Jesus calls to himself? Ordinary men. Kings and princes, right? No. No, not kings and princes. No, fishermen and tax collectors. That's who Jesus is calling. God's power is demonstrated through weakness time and time again in the Bible. Just 
thinking of this here of uh, establishing the kingdom. Non-Christian, if if you're, I want I want to say this to you is that you don't have to be somebody special to be forgiven. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to be somebody special to be forgiven. The question is, have you been recreated? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the point. You have to be recreated. So Jesus is creating a people for himself. He is calling these men forth. He's actually creating them. He's a sovereign Lord who, when he distributes his call, it's effectual and people come. So what do you need as a non-Christian? You need God to call you and to create you, to recreate you. You need to be born again. To my Christian friends, Luke 6, 12, it says, in Luke 6 is the parallel passage, it says that Jesus prayed all night. This is a major time in the life of Jesus and his mission. And what do you see him doing? He goes out and he prays all night. But let me speak this. Before big decisions that we are faced with, before major sort of turning points in our life, beware of your laziness. Beware of letting your laziness masquerade as faith and confidence in God. Oh, I trust God. He'll take care of it. Which, which basically means I'm just too lazy to pray. I don't want to stay up all night and pray. God will take care of it. Well, on to verses 19 through 30. In 19 through 30, what we see is something very disturbing. The enemies of God. 19 through 30. Listen to the passage. He calls all of his apostles, and then he says, And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Do you know that Mark's gospel is the only gospel that includes that statement? Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that, but, but he, this is the reason why Mark's gospel has a ring of truth. People call Mark's gospel into question, raising all kinds of issues about whether or not it's authentic. Why would Mark write something like this that's embarrassing about Jesus' family? See, the ring of authenticity here. But this is a very disturbing uh, change of events here. See, as difficult and as potentially embarrassing as this is, Mark writes this precisely because it actually happened. It actually happened. See, Jesus' family says he's out of his mind, which means he's mentally ill. Jesus' family thinks he's actually psychotic, he's delusional, he's deranged. Jesus actually needs to see a psychiatrist. That's what's going on here. His family thinks that he's crazy. Now, to be fair, to be fair, the text says that Jesus has not eaten. Doesn't it say that? Look at look at look at look at verse uh, twenty-one. It says, and he, and he went and his family heard it. They went out to see him, but they were saying he's out of his mind. Verse twenty. And he went home. It's verse twenty, so that they could not even eat. So Jesus has been out doing ministry all, just all day. It's, it's all he does is ministry. He must be extremely exhausted. He hasn't eaten. And when his family sees him, they probably look at him and his appearance has changed. He probably looks rough. Because he's been doing so much ministry. And he probably looks rough. And so his, his family is probably legitimately concerned about him. 
and they may have been shocked at his appearance, but the Greek text would indicate that his family has come to arrest him, to seize him, and to bring him back to his right mind. So the, what I want you to see is the intention of his family, though probably motivated by a good heart, misses it completely on Jesus. They're completely oblivious to what Jesus is doing, so much so that they want to go and arrest Jesus and seize him and bring him back to his right mind. But the point remains that his family has seriously missed the point on Jesus. And then if, if, if you think it can't get worse, look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's not mentally ill. He's demon-possessed. Whoa. This is where blasphemy of the Holy Spirit comes in. Maybe you've never understood what that means before. But now I think you'll understand it. See, another accusation comes against Jesus by the scribes. They say he's demon-possessed. But he's possessed by Beelzebul, who is presumably the prince of demons. See, the scribes are accusing Jesus not only of being demon-possessed, but using the power of Satan to cast out demons. That's, that's what they're saying here. Don't miss the sad reality of what's taking place here. Jesus' family thought that he was out of his mind and that he needed to be taken to a psychiatrist. The crowd see Jesus as a miracle worker and just want to selfishly get something from Jesus. And now the scribes are so blind to Jesus' true identity that they dare to make the utterly blasphemous charge that Jesus, the one who performs his miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit, is demon-possessed. And so they commit the unforgivable sin by attributing to the devil that which they knew to be the work of God. The scribes have so corrupted their minds. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what I'm talking about. The scribes have so corrupted their minds and their affections that they now consider light to be darkness and darkness to be light. They can never be saved. They can never be saved because to them they can never be forgiven because to them the work of God is demonic. Do you see this? They are so perverted in their thinking that they consider the work of God to be a demonic work. But not only do they see the miracles of Jesus to be a demonic work, they actually turn their back on the Messiah and reject him altogether. The scribes have now utterly rejected the Messiah, and they consider him to be a demon-possessed man. And Jesus answers their charge by speaking to them in parables. Did you ever wonder what parables are for? Parables serve multiple purposes, but one of the purposes of parables is that they cast judgment on those who hear them. Parables are meant, in many cases, to, be, to function as judgments. So seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. It's a blinding, it's a veil over the eyes of those who are hearing. So when Jesus speaks parables in the next few verses to the scribes, the message is veiled. They can't hear it. So in this parable, basically what's happening is Jesus is basically saying, look, a general never wins a battle by attacking his own flanks. You can't win a battle by attacking your own army. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So he, what he does is he likens the whole world to a house, and in it there's all sorts of prisoners, and, this, and what that means is this world is in bondage to sin and death and to the demonic realm, and Jesus has the audacity to say, I am stronger than the strong man. I'm greater than the strong man, and I've come to bind the strong man and to free the prisoners. This is gospel that Jesus is giving in this parable. Jesus is the mighty one who is stronger than Satan, death and all the forces of evil. What we see on the cross is that the judge 
himself is receiving the justice. The judge himself is receiving divine judgment. We see him receiving the penalty for our sins. This, my friends, is mightiness. When the Lord of the universe is strong enough to be weak in order to pay the penalty of our sins, this is the ultimate strength. The strength to be willing to suffer and die. He has forever changed what it means to defeat evil. And subsequently, through the death of Christ, for Satan to be defeated. Well, this leads me to my conclusion. Verses 31 through 35. So what's the whole point of this chapter? You see, all throughout the passage, we have this running theme of insiders and outsiders. Who's in and who's out? In verses 1 through 6, we have the Pharisees. They thought they were in, but they were outsiders. Even though they were meticulous followers of the law of God, oh sure, they obeyed the law to a T, but you see, that was their problem. That was their problem. They trusted their religion, their obedience, their works righteousness. They didn't need Jesus, and so they were condemned. Non-Christian friend, let me say this to you before I forget. Religion does not save. I hear non-Christians talk like this all the time. Well, I say, I'm religious. He's religious. This person's religious. I just want to be a good person. That's the wrong thing to say. That's the absolute wrong thing to say. That's the worst thing you can say. Religion will not save you. It never has. It hasn't saved anybody. It'll condemn you. The surest way to go to hell is to be religious. I'm serious. You be religious and trust in your religion. That will take you to hell. Jesus hates that. Then there are crowds of people in verses 7 through 12. You say, well, at least they're seeking Jesus. Yeah, they're seeking Jesus. But unfortunately for so many of them, they came to Jesus with selfish motives. Want a healing. Well, thankfully we have the apostles, right? 13 through 19. The apostles are insiders. They are. They're insiders to be sure. Make no uh, there's no doubt about that. But unfortunately, not all of them. Look at verse 19. Judas. Judas wasn't. He betrayed Jesus in the end. Okay, then what about the scribes? <laughs> not a chance. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Calling Jesus the work of God? Just demonic? No, not a chance. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They utterly rejected the Messiah. Well, then what about Jesus' family? Well, sadly, no. At least at this point, they will someday. But at this point, no. Look at verse 21. They try to arrest Jesus and take him away from what God had called him to do under the false assumption that he was crazy, that he needed a psychiatrist. Even Jesus' family seems to have missed the point. So then who's in the kingdom? Who's in the kingdom? What kind of person is, is a kingdom person? Well, the driving force of this whole text hinges on the following words. The whole weight of Mark 3 hinges on this paragraph, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, probably his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark places the whole weight of this narrative section on the question of verse 33. Who are my mother and brothers? And his subsequent answer in verse 35, whoever does the will of God is my mother, sister, and brother. This is the climax. How do we know if somebody's in the kingdom? Notice I did not ask, how does one qualify to be in the kingdom? The question I'm asking is, how do we know if someone is in the kingdom? The ones who are in the kingdom are those who are busy doing the will of God. It's important for us here to hear the words of Mark 3 in light of the words of Mark 1. Please don't miss this. Hear Mark 3 in light of Mark 1. One enters the kingdom through repentance and faith. Mark 1, the gospel of the kingdom. Repentance and faith. But the evidence that one is in the kingdom is Mark 3.35. Mark 3 is about the character of those who are in the kingdom. So what does a kingdom person look like? This is, the, this is the main point of Mark 3. The characteristic of one who is in the kingdom of God is a person who does the will of God, which begs the question, what is the will of God? Well, I think 1 John 3.23 can help us. 1 John 3.23, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, to do the will of God is to believe in His Son. It is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, members of the kingdom are those who have responded to the message of the kingdom. And what's the message of the kingdom? The message of the kingdom is the gospel. So where does that leave you? The Pharisees and scribes were too religious to be in a kingdom. It was useless. They were scholars of the Old Testament. It was useless for them to be scholars of the Old Testament. It was useless that they knew the Scriptures inside and out. Useless. None of that qualified them to be in the kingdom. Judas was an apostle. And even though he was directly discipled by Jesus, that did not qualify him to be in the kingdom. And being a member of Jesus' own family wasn't enough to qualify a man to be in the kingdom. Nothing short of faith and repentance in the gospel in the Son of God, in the Messiah, is sufficient to be in the kingdom. So let me leave leave you with this question. Do we have any Judases here this morning? Is anybody here trusting in their ministry position? Do we have any scribes here this morning? Any of you trusting in your biblical scholarship? Do we have any Pharisees here this morning? Anyone trusting in your religion or your spirituality? Do we have any family members here this morning? Anyone trusting in your church membership? Your connection to the family of God? Friends, these are all counterfeit gods. They're all idols of the heart. So what does a kingdom person look like? A kingdom person is a person who has Jesus plus nothing, which is everything. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Thank you for your word. Take it now, Lord, and apply it to our hearts and change us through it. In Jesus' name.